Each morning, all family members in Gaza text each other with this question. Hey, are you alive? Are you still alive? Nala Nabil is 29 years old, and as she put it, I am simply a woman from Gaza. She's also a human rights activist. It's her job to get the word out every day about what Gazans are going through. But it's not easy. Psychologically, all of us are tired. We are emotionally and psychologically destroyed. I, I, I mean this word, destroyed. Israel has been bombing Gaza day and night for over a week. It says it's only targeting military assets, but more than 200 people have been killed, including dozens of children. Many Gazans say this is the worst violence they've ever seen. And that's particularly horrifying when you consider just how much violence Gazans have had to live through. Four major military assaults in 14 years, a blockade that makes it near impossible for people to get basic supplies or to get out themselves. This is a land under siege. And even when the bombs aren't actively dropping, it doesn't mean there's peace. I'm Kevin Hurton, in from Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Gaza is a narrow strip of land between the Mediterranean Sea, Israel, and Egypt. More than two million people live there. It's one of the most densely populated places in the world. When you bomb an area that crowded, though the term used is often targeted strikes, there's little escape for civilians. We've watched this crisis in Gaza unfold on our screens, often from afar, as rockets fire, bombs detonate, and buildings collapse. Today, we're going closer to the ground to speak to the people living in this war zone each and every day. You may have heard our episode last week about Israeli settlers illegally forcing Palestinians in occupied East Jerusalem out of their homes. That's the first part of this latest chapter of the story. On Monday, May 10th, the conflict took a turn for the worse. Gaza's health ministry says nine Palestinians have been killed in Israeli airstrikes on the territory. The strikes came after Hamas militants fired rockets from Gaza towards Jerusalem, after hundreds of Palestinians were injured in clashes at a Muslim holy site. I asked Nada about that night. I was at my bed talking to my husband about our preparation for Eid al-Fitr. Eid al-Fitr, the Muslim celebration at the end of the holy month of Ramadan. Muslims usually on Eid al-Fitr buy clothes, chocolates, and other kinds of sweets. So that day exactly, we bought our uh, Eid stuff. Remember, this is Monday. Eid was meant to begin on Thursday. At that moment, I was talking to my husband about the chocolate. They seem delicious. Shall we start eating them right now and not waiting for the eat? We were joking about that and everything turns upside down. The sound of bombardments on the Gaza Strip were very loud and we were shocked because usually when there is a military attack on Gaza. They use airstrikes against border areas, so the sound of, of these uh, attacks were not too much close uh, to us. So this time was uh, very different. The, the sound of missiles and airstrikes were beyond description or explanation. Nada says no explanation will do justice to the terror these airstrikes cause. 
But Nuruddin, a 26-year-old student and translator in Gaza, tried. I was with my cousins in the middle of Gaza, planning to have a Ramadan iftar meal together. When we hear the first bombing at, uh, in Gaza, northern, where I actually live. On Friday, May 15th, the fifth day of the bombings, he added, Life here has stopped. There is no way to work or to study. All of Gaza is under air attack. If you can listen, if you can hear uh, this bombing right now, all of Gaza, all of Gaza is under air bombing now, all day and night. My own house uh, now is shaking. Actually, my own house have uh, been shaking for days because of the force of the bombing. And he says the force of those bombs have kept Gazans awake every single night since May 10th. I don't think that uh, anyone in Gaza can sleep now. Not just because of the bombardment, but also because of our worry. Our worry about our friends and family. Sometimes we spend all the night trying to reach them when we hear that uh, there is a bombing around them in the radio. That's what we experience every night. Because everyone is a target. Everyone is a target to the Israeli occupation. Nada also talked about the psychological impact of those nightly air raids. With each airstrike that Israel launches against uh, Gaza, we think it's our turn. Maybe we are the next victims. Maybe we are waiting a- a- another airstrike or missile to be on our head and we will lost our lives. A lot of Palestinians are saying, this seems worse. The, the bombs that are coming in seem to be worse and bigger and more powerful than in other conflicts in the past. Is that something that you've noticed? Yes, yes, of course. And we here in Gaza believe that uh, Israel is using now new weapons and it tries them on us. So we are for Israel like like mice that that are used to try new things. So it sounds like you're living every moment thinking it could be your last. What does that do to you emotionally to have that kind of constant fear of, of physical harm for not just you, but also your family? I am strong, and I know all Gazans are strong, but there are moments in which you break down, in which you cry, in which you say, please stop this war. The situation here in Gaza is really difficult. All the time you hear a news about, oh, you know that friend, he he died yesterday. You know our neighbor who is working as a computer engineer? Yes, I know him. What happens to him? He also was killed. All the time we receive news about the killing of our friends, of our family members and beloved ones. Personally, I have a serious pain in my stomach, in my ears, in my head. My body is very tired because this military attack has started on Gaza. I haven't slept except for only five or six hours. My brother and sister who live outside of Gaza and who all the time contact us saying, are you alive? We are crying over your losses. We are worried about you. And I also have to pretend to be strong and tell them that 
don't worry, we are okay, we are fine. So um, I have to be all this at once. And it's, it's not only me, by the way, all the Gazans uh, play these uh, rules. For example, doctors, journalists, we have to, to run the life at the expense of our, uh, of our personal feelings and suffering. That point about journalists working despite personal suffering really hit home for us at Al Jazeera. This past weekend, Israel bombed a tower that housed our Gaza offices. It's also home to the Associated Press's bureau and several other offices and departments. Israel says Hamas uses this building, although no one publicly has verified that claim. The United States Secretary of State Antony Blinken even said he's seen no evidence. When the entire tower came crashing down, our colleagues saved what equipment they could and went live on air to share what happened. Here's correspondent Safwat Al-Khalut. Everybody was doing the daily coverage, the daily business as we do, or affairs. So when this happened immediately, we panicked, frankly. We panicked because we didn't expect that to happen in this way. And here's Gazan journalist Yumna Al-Sayed. We were all given just one hour to evacuate uh, during this time of escalation, all offices are off, they're not working. So basically, what is working are the two media offices of Al Jazeera and the AP and the residential uh, apartments of the people. So I don't know where is the threat that came from this building. When these buildings come down, people lose their homes. They seek refuge with their families or in UN-run schools. And there are other far-reaching impacts, too. For example, the tower where Al Jazeera was based reportedly housed some of Gaza's internet infrastructure. Nada talked to us about the fears around losing connectivity. I saw on a Facebook a post for someone. He lives outside of Gaza and he posted this. Uh, hey guys, my family members live next to uh, a tower that was destroyed by Israel. I tried to call them since the morning, but they don't have internet connection. Please, someone go and check them. Just tell me they are alive or not. So, of course, internet connection, people, when they don't have internet connection, uh, it, it would be very difficult for them psychologically also because they will all the time be worried about their friends, family members, and uh, beloved ones. Let me ask you a little bit about Gaza in general. And, and I'm talking about before, you know, last week and just trying to give us a sense of what it's like to live in Gaza, you know, especially some of the challenges uh, that you face every day, just just living your life, but also some of the, the, the good things, some of the things that you love about about your community. When I want to talk about Gaza, I have those mixed feelings. I think it's impossible to live in Gaza but it is also impossible to leave it. You know, this place is very beautiful. We love our sea. We love our streets. We have this restaurant that can offer meals for all the people of Gaza, whether you are poor, whether you are rich. So there is a strange feeling. I think that only Gazans can understand it. It's so hard to understand, Nata says because of all the hardships that also come with living in Gaza. 
Life there is largely characterized by the Israeli blockade of the territory. It affects every aspect of life. Here's Matthias Schmali, the head of the UN's humanitarian operations in Gaza. Some people, I think, rightfully describe Gaza as the biggest open-air prison. And what that means is it's really cut off from the world. Movement in and out is controlled by other people. And so it's a really a very controlled environment, a very densely populated environment. 14 years of blockade have led to a um, significant collapse of the economy. Before COVID times, there was 50% unemployment with a high proportion of young people unemployed and an even higher proportion of women unemployed. So what I'm trying to get across is really this layer and layer upon layer of crisis. I think as the week goes on, the big story is going to be the shortages, especially water. Can you tell us what it means to have a water shortage? Like if you turned on the tap tomorrow and didn't have water for the home you're living in, how would you go about getting water? Because Gazans have gone through many wars and many Israeli attacks, we have a good experience how to deal with such situation. So whenever the Israeli forces started their airstrike, you will see fathers and mothers go in the bathroom or toilet and uh, use everything that can contain water to put water in it. So if you, for example, enter uh, any kitchen of the Gazan's house right now, you will see bowels, the, the bowels that we use for cooking and for food, they are full of water. Another infrastructure concern, electricity. The Gaza Strip's main distribution company announced this week that Israeli airstrikes have taken out electricity lines that supply more than half of Gaza's power, and they can't be repaired because of the constant bombing. After the latest Israeli strike, there was a cup of electricity. Locals are saying that they are targeting uh, streets, uh, electricity supplies. Electricity in the area around the building went out after it collapsed. Residents had to use flashlights to search for their belongings. Even at the best of times, Gazans get power for a fraction of the day. Now, it's even less reliable. Imagine that you live in an apartment and with your children, you are crowded because you, in such situation, you normally receive people and host them because uh, they evacuated their home and forced to, to think about the death, to, to think that you are the next victim, to hear all these horrible sounds and above all, it's dark. So, of course, electricity and uh, internet connection, Gazans fail to have them. It, it makes the situation worse, actually. Right. So you're in the dark, literally and figuratively, in terms of information. Yes. You mentioned earlier the, the hospitals, that some people, when they have to flee their home, they, they just go to the hospital. Are you worried about how the hospitals are coping or are going to be coping as the week progresses? I think hospitals right now in Gaza are extremely suffering because uh, even before the military attack has started on Gaza, uh, our health sector here in Gaza is already uh, deteriorating because we are under blockade. So you are talking about something that is already damaged. Add to that the coronavirus pandemic, very few people in Gaza are vaccinated, and then the relentless air raids. 
So the doctors of Gaza said in many press conferences about the difficulties they have and they call on all countries outside of Gaza to put pressure in Israel to stop this aggression because they can't cope with this situation. And I, I want to mention this point that Israeli military forces targeted all the streets next to hospitals. We heard from Dr. Midhat Abbas, who consults for Gaza's Ministry of Health. He also mentioned attacks on health facilities. There was a health center, primary health care center called Hala El Shawa Center. That center was used to treat chronic patients and giving vaccines of corona and vaccines for children in the northern provinces of the Gaza Strip. It was, it was totally annihilated. And there we have witnessed partial damage in Beth Hanun Hospital. So they are still attacking domestic zones. And that's a war crime. The capacity is very limited. We have only at about 2,000 beds, Gaza Strip hospital beds, I mean. So if things continue like this, it will be a very miserable situation, of course. Dr. Abbas sent us messages on Friday, and it's worth noting that things did get worse since. Two senior doctors were killed by Israeli airstrikes on Sunday. One of them was the head of Gaza's coronavirus response. Nada mentioned that the electricity crisis we mentioned earlier compounds the medical crisis because the hospitals need power to run. And then there's also the internal displacement caused by the bombings. There is an announcement for Ministry of health that there are about 41 uh, percentage uh, of coronavirus cases among people who evacuated their homes and go to hospitals to live there and they go to schools to live there. So th- this will also make the, the situation regarding the coronavirus outbreak more difficult and worse. So you're saying that people are flooding to the area where there's most coronavirus concentration just for safety, but they might end up getting coronavirus in the process. Yes, of course. So I I, I think they escaped from a death to another death, let me say. Throughout my conversation with Nada, I kept thinking back to the fact that almost half of Gaza's two million people are children. We've heard about how difficult the situation is for adults, doctors, NGO workers, and activists. But what must it be like for a child there now? I asked Nada about her observations. I wonder if there are children in your life who you've had to try to explain what's happening and how that how you do that. As I said, I am now at my husband's family house, and of course, my there are children here around us. When it comes about children, it's really heartbreaking. I saw myself the children here in the family who is trembling who puts his hands on his ears in order to avoid the big sound of the airstrikes they are crying some of them pretend to be strong and and say no it's something easy it will go and actually there are children whose age is 11 and 10 who calms their younger uh, brothers and sisters most of the children here in Gaza understand well the situation in Gaza because the, the, the reality we live force them to know the nature of the struggle we live. Nouradin also touched on this reality of childhood in Gaza. Here in Gaza, the child learns the meaning of death before he learns the meaning of life. We learned by the hard way. 
how to distinguish between the sound of a missile and the sound of a shell, between a war plane missile and the reconnaissance plane missile. My own house was bombed with burning white phosphorus twice back in 2008. I was almost 14 when I was standing ready with a bucket of water all the time throughout the war in order to try to extinguish the fire in the house and we were uh, suffocating uh, in this process. Throughout this episode, we've touched on a long list of struggles that Gazans have had to live through. Water shortages, blackouts, loss of internet, and the bombings above it all. I asked Nada about how she moves forward amidst all these hardships. The difficult things that I live just give me a feeling of revenge. So I want to take revenge, but what is the way I choose to take revenge is to expose and to talk. For example, this meeting that I I make with you right now, I am actually not emotionally or psychologically ready for it, and I don't prepare the answers. I am emotionally destroyed. But, you know, I have to do this. It's my kind of revenge and the way that I, I can relieve my pressure and relieve my pain. And that's the take. This episode was produced by Priyanka Tilve with Alexandra Locke, Dina Kisba, Amy Walters, Nagin Oliayi, Malika Bilal, and Ney Alvarez. Alex Roldan is our sound designer, Tom Fenton is our story editor, and Stacey Samuel is the executive producer. Special thanks to Rayad Radwan, Ali Kaswat, Ikram Abbas, and Saeed Arakat for giving us their time and thoughts for this episode. We'll be back. <laughs>